Section three of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter two, James the Second, Part one. On the second of February, sixteen eighty five, in the midst of the dissipations of his court, Charles the Second was suddenly taken ill and died on the morning of the sixth of February. James was proclaimed king without any disturbance. According to custom, he at once addressed a short speech to the lords of the council, in which he strove to allay the anxiety which was caused by his religion. He told them that he knew he was accused of a love for arbitrary power, but that they would find him as lenient as his brother had been. He expressed himself willing to maintain the existing order in church and state, and said that it would be his care to support and defend the Church of England. His speech produced a favorable impression, and when published, did much to diminish the anxiety which had disturbed men's minds. The majority of people dreaded any disturbance, and were willing loyally to accept James II if he would be true to his promises. He was fifty-two years of age and was not likely to reign long. In 1673, he had married for the second time a young and pretty wife, Mary of Modena, but his second marriage had brought him no living child. Both the daughters of his first marriage, Mary, Princess of Orange, and Anne, Princess of Denmark, were zealous Protestants, and there was every reason to hope that on his death the throne would again be filled by a Protestant. Till then, men were willing to wait patiently. In general, James II seemed at first inclined to follow in the steps of Charles II. He made some changes in the ministry, but retained most of those ministers who had stood high in Charles II's favor. He was as anxious as Charles II had been to keep on good terms with France. But it was clear that it would not do to put off any longer summoning a parliament, and in the present favorable temper of the nation it was best to do so as soon as possible. James II begged Barillon, the French ambassador, to assure his master that only the extreme urgency of the moment could have prevailed upon him to take such a step without first consulting Louis XIV. But he promised not to allow Parliament to interfere in foreign politics and to dismiss it if it were unwilling to submit to him. James II's brother-in-law and prime minister, the Earl of Rochester, was bidden to ask Barillon for more money. Louis XIV had foreseen this demand, and at the first news of Charles II's death had sent £7,500 to Barillon for the use of James II. When Barillon carried the good news to Whitehall, James II shed tears of joy at the thought of Louis XIV's considerate kindness. He determined to send an extraordinary embassy to express his devotion and gratitude, and named Lord Churchill as his ambassador. Churchill, like others, was willing to believe James II's assurance of good government, but was not without some anxiety for the future. He said to Lord Galway in Paris, if the king should attempt to change our religion and constitution, I will instantly quit his service. 
Churchill returned from Paris in time to be present at the king's coronation, and soon afterwards was raised to the English peerage under the title of Baron Churchill of Sandridge in Hertfordshire. Whilst in England the accession of James II had been peacefully accepted, there was a band of Whig refugees in Holland who were by no means prepared to witness tamely the destruction of all their hopes. Chief in rank amongst these refugees was the Duke of Monmouth and the Scottish Duke of Argyll. These two men were pushed on by the more violent among their companions to make a descent on England in the hope of raising a rebellion which would put Monmouth on the throne. The Duke of Argyll was to land in Scotland, where it was hoped that his popularity would induce many to join him, whilst Monmouth was to effect a rising in the west of England, where he was well known and much beloved by the people. The Duke of Argyll started first on the 2nd of May, and his attempt proved a disastrous failure. The Scots showed themselves too timid to gather round him. He himself had only the nominal command of the expedition, and was hampered at every step by the interference and ignorant folly of his companions. His small force faded away without a battle, and he was made prisoner whilst attempting to escape. He was taken to Edinburgh and suffered death on the scaffold with great dignity on June 30th, 1685. Meanwhile, Monmouth had landed at Lyme on the 11th of June, and thousands flocked eagerly to his standard. The Duke of Abermale marched against him with the train bands and thought that he would easily be able to crush the insurrection at one blow. But alarmed at the resolute appearance of the rebels, and still more at the temper of his own troops, which made him afraid that they would go over to the enemy in a body, he thought it best to retreat. In London, vigorous measures were being taken to meet the danger. Parliament and the great mass of the people showed unwavering loyalty, and even the Whigs had no desire to favor Monmouth's cause. The forces of the government were rapidly got together. Churchill was appointed to command a small body of troops assembling at Salisbury, and his vigilance enabled him to scatter many of the detached bands of rebels. Monmouth, who had caused himself to be proclaimed king at Taunton on June 20th, 1685, sent a trumpeter to Churchill claiming his allegiance and bidding him suspend all hostilities. Churchill took no notice of his letter except to forward it to James II. With his handful of men, he harassed Monmouth on his march and threw constant difficulties in his way. Monmouth had counted on a general rising of the Whigs in his favor. He knew that with a crowd of undisciplined peasants, he would be able to effect nothing against regular troops. He could form no settled plan of action, but wandered helplessly from place to place. Meanwhile, Lord Feversham was advancing at the head of the Royalist army and had been joined by Churchill. They encamped at Weston Zoyland, a village in Somersetshire, which rose out of the midst of a marsh called Sedgemoor. Monmouth determined to risk a night attack on the royalist camp, for Feversham was an utterly incompetent commander, and the discipline of his camp was lax. Monmouth thought that if he could effect a surprise, his chances might not be altogether hopeless. On the night of Sunday, July 6th, 
the attack was made in the midst of a thick mist. The chance report of a pistol alarmed the royalist troops. The rebels lost themselves in the mist and amongst the deep ditches which intersected the moor, and all chance of taking the troops by surprise was gone. Though Feversham was still in bed, the troops under Churchill's orders fell upon the rebels on all sides. Monmouth saw that the day was lost. Anxious to save his life at any cost, he fled from the field, whilst those who were risking everything for his sake fought bravely on. By four o'clock in the morning the rebels were completely routed and fled in all directions. Feversham, who had borne no part in the battle, now suffered his soldiers to spread devastation on all sides, and his military executions filled the country with horror. Monmouth had been captured in his attempt to flee into Hampshire, he was taken to London, and though he abased himself to plead for life to James II in the most abject terms, was executed on July 15th. James II showed the cruelty and hardness of his disposition by the terrible steps which he took to punish this insurrection. Not satisfied by the horrors of the military executions which had followed the Battle of Sedgemoor, he sent into the western counties Chief Justice Jeffreys, a judge who had earned his favor by his unscrupulous violence and cruelty, to punish all who had had any share in the insurrection. This circuit is commonly known as the Bloody Assize. Three hundred and twenty rebels were hanged, eight hundred sold into slavery beyond the sea. Even the queen and her ladies were not ashamed to profit by the sale of these unhappy victims. Well might Churchill exclaim, as he struck upon the chimney-piece on which he leant, This marble is not harder than the king's heart. Churchill himself had no share in this cruelty. His energy had really won the Battle of Sedgemoor, but he only occupied a subordinate place in the army, and Feversham had never troubled to consult with him or confide his plans to him. Churchill bore this neglect with his characteristic self-command, and showed himself so respectful to his incompetent superior, and so zealous in discharging his duties, that Feversham praised his behavior and promised to report on it to the king. Churchill was appointed colonel of the third troop of horse guards for his services at the Battle of Sedgemoor. After this, he took no part in public affairs during the remainder of the reign of James II. There was no opportunity for military service, and James must have considered Lord Churchill too firm in his attachment to the Protestant faith to deserve promotion to any office of state. End of section 3